Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond at the home of thehappymd.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. We've got a repeat guest and a friend of the podcast, Dr. Maisha Claiborne, MD. She was on episode number 20, where we talked about the entrepreneur journey, following your calling wherever it takes. And uh, Maisha has a whole bunch of expertise in the concept of unconscious conditioning being roadblocks to your personal evolution and how to overcome that specifically using things like neuro-linguistic programming, which is abbreviated NLP. What we're going to do on this episode is talk about how we all have inner blockages to self-actualization that shows up when you find it difficult to change and you're burned out. At least that's one of the places that we're going to talk about. So, Maisha, welcome again to the podcast. It's just a pleasure to see and have you here again. You know, it's always my pleasure to to have these conversations with you and, and to be able to impact your audience. So thank you for having me again. You're welcome. Now, when I think about the concept of unconscious, subconscious conditioning in doctors, I think about two things. The fact that we are a specialized population of people, we're a subset of of the human psyche, human programming, human personality, human drives and urges to begin with when we're standing at the lightworker's fork before we even make the decision to go to medical school. Then once we drop into the medical education system, the screws really get put to us on the condition that comes in that place. What do you think about docs just before education, before the medical school residency experience, just docs as a group? Do you think that they have any patterns in our subconscious conditioning prior to that experience? Oh, absolutely. I think that it takes a special personality, a special kind of conditioning to want to go into medicine in the first place. You know, it's so funny how the, I would say the general population thought in the past that we go into this for the money. Clearly, that's not the case. The kind of people that go into medicine typically are people who are problem solvers, people who are caretakers. They want to to impact and contribute and help. And so there's usually some programming to care for and to be selfless inside of the personality that goes into medicine anyway. Well, and then I'd toss out two more obvious groups that come to me. One is the person who's pushed to be a doctor because of parental or other expectations. Mm-hmm. And the other one is, I think that there's a popular misconception, because I hear this all the time, that a doctor becomes a doctor because at the age of six, they're struck by a bright light that convinces them <laughs> they have to be a neurosurgeon, right? <laughs> and as far as like the, the classic epiphany of a kid, a little kid to want to be a neurosurgeon, tell me about when you were making the decision to be a doctor, what was going on, you almost never actually hear that story. Right, right. I mean, even my story is fairly random. I just decided I was going to medical school because I wrote 
uh, Emory and Emory School of Medicine. And they were like, oh, yeah, come visit us. We'd love to have you. And then I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to medical school. Like that was my whole decision. Right. Eighth grade writing assignment. I decided well, to go to medical school. <laughs> well, you when you make up your mind, you're you're going to make that happen, aren't you? Right. It was just, <laughs> oh, this is, and I think, you know, Ken, I, I did have the personality. I'm the oldest child. I am the, the the child of people in the medical industry. So it's what I know. But I never in my mind up until that point thought, oh, I'm going to be a doctor because my mom's a doctor because my dad's a doctor. It was that writing assignment that was like, oh, I guess I, I'm going to medical school now then. Well, let's just say you passed the marshmallow test. <laughs> And I've actually had a habit of asking people a couple of unusual questions. Tell me about the decision process that had you end up going to medical school. Cause I always want to hear that story. Cause that's the origin story of all of this. Typically there's something that hasn't been tapped when the burnout strikes 30 years later, there's something that you had in your origin story that you were, were feeling subconsciously at the time you chose to be a doctor that was never actualized. And, and it's that missing piece that drives some of the burnout. But a lot of times the stories are very mundane. You know, me, I get to the end of four years of honors biology. I got a 397. I say, oh my gosh, I don't want to get a master's in biology because then I'd have to sit in a lab all day long. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the perfect pre-med degree. I'll apply, right? And if I get into a good school, maybe I'll go, right? And at the time, I, I was Indiana State and Midwest under 23 all-star rugby player. So I go to Mayo for an interview. You get one interview for one half hour with a faculty member at Mayo. Turns out he's an old rugby player. Guess what we talked about? Rugby. A half hour of rugby, right? <laughs> Sliding in on my white privilege, I get an offer in the mail, which they took great pains to tell me there were 970 out-of-state applicants and you're one of the five we're going to let in. It had nothing to do with anything medical, anything about my career. It was all about the fact that I got another guy who played rugby. Yeah, so okay. crazy, crazy, crazy. And here I am, what, 40 years later. So there's all sorts of stories like that. We are different. Workaholic, superhero, lone ranger, perfectionist, right? Driven perhaps to serve. But I've never met a person who went into it for the money. So here we are at the threshold. We say, let's go to medical school. Then what happens? Well, I mean, I think that depending on why we choose to go to medical school, and I'll tell you in, in terms of my story, there was a time where I thought I was not going to medical school. But once you tell your parents that you want to be a doctor, well, then that drills something in, in them, like, oh my God, they're going to be a doctor. One of the, the most respected, at least back in the day, one, one of the most respected professions. And then there's the pressure from that. Anytime you tell anybody that you're going to be a doctor, there's the pressure, right? And then you start to say things to yourself, like, oh, now I have to do it, or no turning back now, or, you know, I can't fail. And I think that the kind of personality that goes into medicine anyway is, is the I can't fail kind of person anyway. It's a very driven, high performance kind of person anyway. So I think that once you tell people, once you vocalize that you're going to be a doctor and some in some cultures, in some uh, instances, it's then driven like this is the path you have to go on. And then there becomes this circumstance of necessity to do the thing. 
right? Even if at some point you think you're not going to do the thing. So back what I what I was going to say was that I majored in psychology in, in undergrad. And um, there was a point where I thought, well, maybe I won't go to medical school. Maybe I'll take a different path. And when I told my mother that, she was like, oh, hell to the no. You are going to <laughs> medical school, just like you said you were since the eighth grade. And that was that. And I did enjoy the medical school. Surprisingly, I enjoyed residency. I enjoyed being a doctor, even through the trials and the, and the burnout and the things that, that happened to me along the way. But there was always another path. And I think sometimes we know in the back of our mind that there's another path, but then we, we sort of placate those around us who now that we've told we're going to be a doctor, they're expecting us to do that. And so we do what's expected of us. And then we get into medical school and it just gets ingrained more. This is what's expected of you. And you do what's expected of you until all you know is what's expected of you. And subconsciously, there are all these things going on that you want to do more, but you can't not, you can't stray off the path because you will let people down. That's another thing we say. We'll let people down. We'll disappoint people. It'll be like a failure. I've spent all this money and all this time. These are all the unconscious conversations that maybe don't come out of our mouth, but are inside of our mind as we move forward if we're thinking about getting out. Yeah, absolutely. Guilt and shame. Shame, guilt, and the fact we know, because everybody sees it happen to at least one of our colleagues in med school or residency, is that the profession, when you're in training, has a hair trigger on the ejector seat to kick you out. If you falter, hesitate, don't you're not all in at any point in the training process. It is black, it is white, it is good, it is bad, it is you're gone. And everybody knows somebody who quit medical school you can remember that somebody quit. You just can't remember their name because they've been lost to follow up because they get disappeared. Ghosted is what they call it now, right? Yeah. And I think you said, you know, you said something really great. It's like guilt and shame, but it's also fear. It's really trepidation about not living up to the thing, whatever the thing is. In the case of medical school too, it demands that you cone down your life to focus on your studies because there isn't room for a lot of relationships and hobbies and outside interests and, and, and roundedness, right? So what else would I do? If I crap out of medical school, what am I going to do? I don't have anything else. And that's actually a true statement at that point. It seems like a true statement at that point, right? What else do I have? I don't know how to do everything else. You know how many times I've heard, I've talked to doctors that are like, I don't know how many, I don't know anything else but medicine. And I'm like, are you kidding me? How many books did you read? You have a wealth of knowledge that you can apply in anything, <laughs> right? <laughs> Adjacent to, along the lines of, and maybe even outside of. It's the seem like, it seems like I have, and see, like, this is part of what I teach in, in my trainings is the power of the language that we speak. Like you could say, it is so, it is true. I have this, I am this. Like just so careful about the I am. I can't. I can't do this, right? And really it's more, you know, the, you, could, you could add one word. It seems like I can't, or it seems like this is all. I'll tell you just a quick story because you know, you guys know, I love to talk about my son, right? Me and my son were playing, we have a basketball hoop out in the driveway. And so, you know, I, I never played in high school. I'm not really great, but 
I play with my son because he likes to play basketball with me. So we're playing basketball and he's, you know, about shoulder height to me and I'm five one. And he's, so he's, he's really, you know, he's just getting the strength to shoot the ball and it's, you know, just reaching the part where sometimes he makes it, sometimes he, he doesn't. So he, he, he missed like maybe three or four shots in a row. And then he was like, ah, oh, I'm just no good at this. I'm just no good. And so I, I said to him, <laughs> Delson, my son's name is Delson. Delson, is that true that you're no good? He's got just, I'm just no good. I'm just, I said, well, can you think of a more, imp- like, what's a more positive thing that you could say about that? And so he says, well, I'm just no good at it yet. <laughs> right on. Man, yet is one of the most powerful words to add to the end of a sentence. So then that changed the game. I said, well, Delson, okay, you're not good at it yet. What does that mean? He says, well, I guess that means I have to just keep trying and practicing. And I said, yeah, just like you do in Kung Fu, you keep trying and practicing and look, you're about to get your arch belt. And that just changed his whole attitude. And now he's coming back and he's shooting and he's making it. And it's that thing that's so important about the language that we speak to ourselves. Well, I think that from a meta perspective, one of the things that you accomplished in your journey to become a doctor is you learned how to learn. You learned how to apply yourself to difficult subject matter and conquer it and master it. And so if you apply yourself in a different direction, you're probably better equipped to learn new skills and take this to a new direction than anybody else who has not been through the experience of becoming a doctor. Exactly. You know, the, we, we've learned one of the hardest skills is saying, and I, look, I'm family, so I'm clear that for me, it, it seems like it's one of the easier specialties. But then you got the surgeons and the neurosurgeons and the orthopedic and the sub, sub, sub specialist. And we've learned so much. So, of course, we can learn something now. If I can be reassuring, too, and you know this is true, I'm sure you'll back me up on this. Just so you know, a diagnostician a doctor, what we do every day, 20, 30 times a day, where we take seemingly random facts and assemble them into a logical diagnosis and a treatment plan is a universal business skill set. You walk into any business setting, you're going to be the first when they're describing what's going on, even if you don't injectable plastic manufacturing, if they tell you what's going on and where the issue is, you're going to still be the first person in the room who figures out what the answer is, what the what the strategy you need going forward. It's a universal gathering, sifting, sorting, understanding and communicating skill set you can use in any business situation. And I think that's the thing that we don't recognize because it's drilled into our training that this is the only thing you're good for is the clinic or the research lab or in front of the room, the academia. And so it gets very difficult to see yourself applying all of the skills that you learn, the deductive reasoning skills, the interviewing skills, teaching. The, the consulting skills, the teaching skills. That's right. You know, all of these skills, in addition to the clinical skills and the knowledge base that you have to anything else, right? Yeah, you know, what you're looking at when you're practicing medicine is a single application of a universal skill set. That's right. Subject matter right. specific. And when I said, you know, there, I don't know how to do anything else. And I said, and when you look at it, that's the reality. If you did a time and motion study at that point in your life, you have coned yourself down to a single expression of that universal skill set. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So what do we say to somebody who is coned down, dead in, burned out? Ah, I, I can't do anything else. I can't manage this workload. I can't go on any longer like this. And what we understand, you and I understand, is the walls of shame and failure and guilt that freeze them in place and make them feel like they're trapped. What can we say to those people? Well, you know, the question I always ask, because there is the person who has that language and is ready to do something different. And then there's the person who has that language that's not. So I always have to ask the question, are you ready to do something different? Like, are you at the point where you're ready to make a shift or a change? It doesn't mean you have to leave medicine. It doesn't mean you even have to leave your job. But are you willing to do the work of figuring out, well, what is underneath all of that? Right. I think because a lot of times we focus on as physicians on our professional development, you know, on our uh, we do our CMEs, but we don't always focus on our personal development and what's going on internally and unconsciously that could be having be stay in a circumstance that causes us to continue to be burned out or to not speak up and make requests right? In a circumstance, because a lot of times I'll talk to people and they'll, and I'll say, well, have you ever, they'll say, well, I need to decrease, you know, amount of patients I'm seeing, or I need to, I want to decrease my hours and and maybe go 0.8 or 0.75, but I know that they're not going to let me do that. And I will ask the question, well, have you asked? And the answer is no. The simple thing is to like reorganize their mind. Yes. A remap, as I say, in mind that just go ask. And it's amazing what can happen when you just ask. But the, the condition of I already know, you know, it comes from the conditioning of our training, of being said no to maybe before, or maybe the fail, the fear of, of being say, said no to, right? <laughs> it could be that. Or having seen someone else get said no to, and then generalizing that onto ourselves. So there's all kinds of reasons why someone might say that to themselves. Well, I already know it's not going to work. And then the condition of where they have asked multiple times and it hasn't happened and they choose to stay. Then the question is, what is it internally that has you continue to stay in a circumstance where they're not supporting you? What is the unconscious conversation that you're telling yourself about yourself and about your capability that will have you stay and suffer in a place that does not want to support you. Well, and a lot of times when I see the the people that are leaders who care not only about the patient, but about their colleagues and want to build a better work situation, a lot of the things that will freeze them in a bad situation are thinking about, but what about my patients? Who'll take care of them? But what about the staff that I'll leave behind? Who's going to take care of them? And uh, my motto is never be the last rat off a sinking ship. And that those feelings are valid, that what about my patients, what about my colleagues is valid feeling, but it's not necessarily sufficient for you and your family to be making the decision to stay in a bad situation over and over and over again. Right. And what I tend to say about that is I get that you have a an extreme loyalty to your patients and even your staff and even the organization. However, if something 
God forbid, were to happen, but you could not go to work for whatever reason. Yeah, my my uh, example is always you fracture your pelvis in a car wreck on the way to work tomorrow. Yeah, whatever it is, right? They will replace you quickly, right? Right. <laughs> they will do that. And and then the other thing I get is, well, I don't, you know, they won't replace me, but the, the work will just fall into my colleagues. And I say, well, I I get that as well. And you're going to, you know, it's like, are you going to kill yourself worrying about your colleagues? Your colleagues at some point will have to take responsibility just as you do. And so, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit more rigorous in that, in that respect. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's also how many have already left. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, I ask about, you know, I, I talk about inappropriate guilt, right? Because a lot of times the guilt of leaving patients and the guilt of leaving staff is while the feelings are valid, the, the guilt in itself in and of itself is inappropriate guilt because they've done nothing wrong. Right. It's like the condition of self-care. And I get this all the time as well. Like people feel guilty. Moms, this is a condition of moms, women. We feel guilty for putting ourselves first, even if it's every now and then. Well, as a mom, you're third in line, right? There's your child, there's your patients, and then there's you. <laughs> Right. Could be fourth because it could be your child, your spouse, your patients. And then, right. Uh, It's, you know, you just get sometimes, you know, we're not even on the burner. People say, oh, put this on the back burner. But like, you're not even on the stove. What burner? I got a two burner stove. (laughs) You're not even on the stove. What are you talking about? Let's just get you back on the stove. There we go. There we go. Get you back in the lineup. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many. So many things that to, to feel guilty, to feel guilty about. And the, and the bottom line is that guilt is inappropriate guilt, because just as we said early, earlier, number one, your patients will find another doctor. They will. And number two, your organization will replace you. They can fill your slot in as little as a week with a locum tenens if it was actually impossible for you to come in. That's right. And what are some other, let's just talk about some other buzzwords that if they come out of your mouth, because one of the things that I did really early on in my coach training, I got certified as a coach in 2000. I got certified as an interactive guided imagery guide in 2000. I've been accused of having NLP training before because of my speech patterns, but it's because I learned from people who are obviously NLP skilled. And there were some at the very beginning, I just took some words out of my vocabulary that basically it is very, very rare that you would find them to be either accurate or useful, right? <laughs> like the word but or can't or should or shouldn't or things like that. When you're thinking about awareness triggers, you know, there are a class of words where if you if you hear yourself say that, if you're able to observe yourself saying that, you know, you're on an edge here. That is not a healthy edge for you. What are some of those words in your work, Maisha? I mean, well, you said you said a lot of them, like the but, you know, what but does is invalidates everything before the but. Yep. The should, you know, that that's a I forgot the grammatical term of it, of necessity, a word of necessity. Should Guilt. have to, you know, can't, can't um, try. Oh gosh. Yeah, definitely try. I'll try. What? (laughs) But the thing I always ask my clients to do. And then when I teach the work, we talk about this is 
let's just listen to the words that come out of your mouth because we there are the buzzwords. But then whether or not you're using buzzwords, there could be something that you're saying to yourself that when you say it gives you that internal ugh, ugh, icky feeling. And you know it, but you just, it just like flies out of your mouth. <laughs> and I think what's important is we have to start listening to what's coming out of our mouth and then like clocking it. When I'm doing my personal transformation processes between one of the sessions, I say, okay, now for the next week, and, and the audience listening can do this, right? For the next week, I want you to listen to everything that comes out of your mouth. Listen to your internal self-talk and any internal self-talk that is not positive, that is negative, write it down. And there's typically some core conversations that come up, but then there are tributaries that that are along the way. So like, you know, that I'm not good enough or, you know, if they only knew, I don't know what I'm doing or. Right. What if they find out? You know, I can't handle this or, you know, all of these, right. They're smarter than me or I'll never be satisfied, or I'll never find my ideal partner, or, you know, like, it's hopeless, whatever it is that you say, like, internally, like, silently, because sometimes this stuff doesn't actually come out of our mouth. And that's what people got to understand is like, sometimes it's not the stuff that comes out of your mouth, it's the stuff that doesn't. And when it happens, write it down. And so they come to me with like these, you know, 20 odd something <laughs> you know, conversations that they have 15,000 words. <laughs> yeah. And then you got to look at, well, where does that come from? What's underneath that? Where's, what's the first time you said that? Because it wasn't in medical school. When's the first time that conversation ever came up? And you start to look beyond. We, we talked about it sort of at the beginning that there's particular personality that comes into medicine. And, and so a lot of us have a particular experience, whatever it looks like. It's not all the same, but it, it might trigger some of the same conversations. And so, you know, you ask yourself, when's the first time that that was said? Yeah. When was the first time you either, either said or heard somebody say that? Typically, if you're on target and the person is at that point where they're capable of contemplating it, they'll look up, they'll look left, there'll be a 20 second silence and they'll say, oh my, <laughs> that's my mom. <laughs> right. Yeah, or maybe it was, some, you know, people think it's got to be something huge, but in my experience, sometimes it's something small. You know, the thing that is big to a five-year-old right. doesn't look the same to a 45-year-old. But at five years old, the thing is big. And then the five-year-old makes a decision about themselves. And then they go about life creating, collecting evidence for that, that thing that they decided is true. And it, then it runs their whole life. This is the thing about the unconscious mind. This is the thing about the subconscious and unconscious mind. Some people use the words sort of interchangeably. I prefer unconscious mind, but I think most people identify and recognize subconscious mind, right? It's the stuff that's out of our awareness, our immediate awareness. But if we were to look, we could bring it up to our awareness. Yeah. And with a guide, you feel safe and you, and you get a different perspective to bring it into the light of day and um, realize just how you may have spent a lot of time and energy falling into the trap of humans loving confirmation bias. <laughs> Because if you want to find confirmation for failure and weakness, it's all it's everywhere all the time. Well, it's a part of the culture. This is the part of the culture we live in. I mean, not just talking about medical culture. I'm talking about the construct that we live in. Right. Some are more capable than others. 
or perceived as such, or the legend is that that is true when actually it's based upon unconscious bias and skin color and things like that. We don't necessarily have to go down this rabbit hole. And as I've been doing the work inside of diversity and, and inclusion and studying even more and more about how did this, how did this construct of race even begin? It is a construct, the societal construct that was created four or five hundred years ago, where someone decided people of a different hue. Actually, people actually what, what it really was is that back in the day, race was used to determine slave from non-slave. And it had nothing to do with the color of one's skin initially, right? In England, that's the way they determined it. It's like slave or not slave. And then at some point, because they conquered a lot of, colonized a lot of areas where there was darker skin, it became known as that. And then it became a construct like dark skin, light skin. And at some point, the race white was actually, uh, it's how they referred to white women who were in the castle that didn't do any work and how they would identify them was because their skin was pale. And so men didn't like being called white because it meant they were in the, they were sickly, right? <laughs> they went out in the fields working. So it's an interesting thing how this whole construct began because it got morphed and distorted and then seeded into the unconscious of generations to come, white and non-white. On both sides of the divide. All sides, right? All sides, yeah. White. So anyway, that was a little bit of a detour, but it's just the, the whole thing of what's out of our awareness. How at points when transition is being called for, so at a, at a point of something like burnout or a point of something like a relationship that's not working, be it a relationship with an individual or with your employer or your boss or any of that kind of stuff, how the things we think are true that just ain't so can keep us frozen in our tracks and make it difficult for us to change, which is one of the reasons, one of the other things that I see, and we'll just talk about this for just a second, is that doctors, because of the way we've overachieved our whole life, we tend to actually want to do the biggest thing first when we're presented with a number of options. You know, what should I do? Make a list. Okay, I make it. Here's the biggest one. I want to do that one, or I want to do all of them. And what ends up happening when it comes to your unconscious or subconscious programming, what you've just done, if you choose the biggest step possible, is you just stepped past your comfort zone, past the learning zone, and into the zone of abject terror where your subconscious conditioning will rear you back, reel you back in, which is why we always ask you to consider what's the smallest step you can take in that direction, right? Or the like I like say that, you know, the, the first next right step. Now, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with taking the biggest step. I mean, it, it's just you got to understand that if you're going to take the biggest step, you're going to be very uncomfortable. You're going to likely have a learning experience rather than what you consider to be a success. The odds will be more in your favor if you have a coach or a guide with you when you take that great big step. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly many times have jumped into the deep end of the pool first. That is my makeup. I learned some people are more experiential learners. And if you're willing to be uncomfortable, it's where the biggest growth happens. It's where the biggest personal development happens. I think we shy away from discomfort. Again, you know, I think it is reasonable for someone who's in that sheer terror of making any move to take the smallest next step, right? To take the smallest next right step. And then there are those people who are ready to go beyond that. And if you know that you're ready to go beyond that, you just have to 
be okay with being a little uncomfortable. Like we, we shy away from discomfort. We shy away from the unknown, but it is the unknown where the most growth, the most transformation happens. And then you look back and you say, wow, I did that. So I'm a, I'm a proponent of taking big steps and I'm compassionate for those who choose not to, right? Who choose to take it slow. You just have to figure out what works for you. And that's, I'm always a proponent of, you gotta do the discovery work, the deep work. What is it that works for you? If it's tiny steps, if you're a chunk down person and you need to take the little steps at a time, then take the little step of your visionary and your big picture person, then you better get with someone who is chunked down and then create all the steps in between and then take your big step. No problem. With a guide. <laughs> that's that's usually the best, uh, <laughs> that's usually the best option. I've done it with and without, and I highly recommend. What I do recommend though is if you think you're gonna do take the big steps, or if you want to take the big step and you're feeling paralyzed about it then I suggest that you look at what's in the way first, because some people think they can't take the big steps and they're just a small chunk person when it's really just a couple of conversations, internal conversations they need to get rid of that would help them to be courageous enough to take the step that they really want to take. And when Maisha and I, who are both coaches, right? Certified coaches, when we talk about it's helpful to have a coach, we're not saying that because of some conflict of interest or anything, what we're saying is we have had multiple coaches in our lives and we prefer to make the big changes with the coach. In my case, what I would say to anybody who's wondering about a coach or a guide or a training, somebody who's walked the path that you think you want to walk and will serve as a guide or a coach along that way, the benefit to you is speed and accuracy. I mean, the reality is, we went to medical school and we had mentors. We went to residency and we had mentors. We had, you know, upperclassmen residents and we had attending advisors. What's, I mean, we get out of residency and, and into our attending world, we still have mentors. So doesn't it make sense that if you're going to try a new path, that you get a mentor or a coach? Doesn't it make sense? Like, it's not like it's anything foreign. You wouldn't like throw a first year resident into the operating room, not having been mentored and say, here, cut out this appendix. No, you couldn't do that. <laughs> right. So no one, if you can step out and quit your job and, and then go try to start your practice with no guidance. I did that, by the way, except for it wasn't quitting a job. It was more getting out of residency. I did that. I signed and walked away from my practice. Absolutely. I did that. I don't recommend it. And look, I was even successful, but I suffered. <laughs> right? And it took me years to learn what now it could take weeks to months to learn. Right. Because if you if you have a guy. Well, and the other thing that I want to do is recommend a resource I've recommended for 20 years right now. And that's because we're talking about transitions. We're talking about points of change in your life where I say burnout's highest and best use is to put you on a path with more purpose. If you're a physician, that path may still be within medicine in some way, or it could be outside medicine as well. But it's that the purpose that you hoped for when you went into medicine petered out on someone else's job description. You're going to make a transition to a different reality. All of us have a history of transitions that we can learn from. And so I'm going to recommend the book, 
Transitions by a guy named William Bridges, because what he does is teach you why you're so uncomfortable and teach you a little bit about the unconscious programming that blocks the way forward, the clarity on the way forward, and allows you to see, oh, when we moved when I was in high school, this is how I transitioned it. Oh, when I let go of that relationship, this is how I did it. And you'll find that you actually have a personal transition style. You can go back through the transition points of your life and and see, oh, when I did it fast, it really worked. Oh, when I did it slow, it really worked. You can see things that have worked and haven't worked when you've been in transitions in the past. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great book to to read. Absolutely. I've read it three times. I always use a different color pen for my margin notes the next time through. (laughs) So, Maisha, is there anything else we want our listeners to know about subconscious, unconscious programming transitions at this point in time? The, The only thing that I would leave the docs with is looking beyond what you know looking deeper into well, what's underneath the fear, what's underneath the guilt, what's underneath the shame, what's underneath the limiting decisions, listening to what's coming out of your mouth. That's the message that I want to leave us with because we don't always focus on that. We don't focus on that deep self. And when we begin to focus on our personal development, not just our professional development, which is important, we begin to focus more on that than we begin to clear out some of the noise and begin to hear ourselves like our true selves. And then from that point, you know, you can start to look at expand the tunnel of possibilities so that it's not a tunnel anymore. Now, when you talk about personal development, one of the things that I've thought for a while, and I've said this a couple hundred times, is that if you listen to people that are in addiction medicine or Al-Anon or things like that, what they'll say is that for a user, they stop their personal growth when they start to use. And so that only begins again when they get clean. So if I start using it, I'm 14 and I get sober when I'm 40, I'm still 14 emotionally. And I then do my personal growth once I have stopped using. I think there is an analogy for medical students and doctors. When you go to medical school, you stop your personal and emotional growth and you wake up some point in the future on your first real episode of burnout. And that's when you start to do this kind of growing, because until then, you've been head down doing the work of medicine that you were trained to do automatically. And the rest of your life potentially is not growing at the same speed. Well, you know, there's an opportunity inside of what you just said for any medical students or residents listening. There is an opportunity to begin to infuse your the personal growth in now right? Because when you do that, you keep the balance in essence. And when I mean balance, I don't necessarily mean uh, time balance because medical school and residency, there is none of that. But the internal balance, you keep in contact with yourself, you stay in your body and you come to know, okay, what, what feels good? Where, where, what, how close to the edge am I? What do I need to do? You begin to learn what you need to do to pull yourself back. And I see it happening more and more in early career docs. And I think it's starting to happen in residence. And unfortunately, it's not made it to medical students yet, but <laughs> I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. And one of the things I say is that it, when you're in medical school or residency, try to hold on to one hobby and a couple of friends. Don't let the task overwhelm of, of med school and residency force you to focus all of your time and energy and thought processes on your work. Maintain, like for me, 
in medical school, what kept me sane was rugby, which means you're going to work out, you're going to play games, you're going to party, you have friends, all that kind of stuff. So if you're a medical student or resident, don't let the work cone down your life so that you abandon all your friends and hobbies. That's, that's what we used to do back in the day. I encourage you not to do that now. One of the things that I used to do is, um, well, I, I was an aerobics teacher. So I taught step aerobics, which was one thing that kept me active. But the other thing is we would, I would, you know, like head down study, like really hit it hard. And then on the week of the test block, me and my girlfriend would go salsa dancing the week of the test block just to like let off some steam, right? Whatever that thing is for you, find that thing that helps you to decompress as a student and as a resident too, because even as a resident, you know, I had, uh, I, I lived up the street from Valley Total Fitness. So I used to go to the gym five days a week. And then, except for, you know, when I was on call or when I was on certain services. And then we had sushi night. I had a couple of friends and we had sushi night. What's your favorite nigiri sushi? Salmon. Ah, mine is amachi yellowtail. And then we had game nights. Our class, we had game nights. Game nights are everything. As you know, you laugh, you get to bond, you get to be silly, you get to let your hair down, infuse laughter and hobbies. I like what you said, a hobby and a, and a few friends that are maybe non-medical or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> rugby friends. <laughs> and in the town I was in, the rugby, the rugby team was a cross culture of the town. It was, it was carpenters and working guys and students and, and folks in medical school and all that kind of stuff. Well, awesome. Aisha, again, I just love spending time with you. That's been a heck of a wide ranging conversation, unconscious, subconscious programming, blocks, transitions, medical school, residency. It's all in there. Maisha, you have so many different websites. What's one you want to tell people about right now? I think that if you go to the drmaisha.com website, Dr. Maisha, that's D-R-M-A-I-Y-S-H-A.com. And I'll have a link down below. Yes, you will get the uh, the widest or the, the most comprehensive view of what I do. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you once again, Dyke Drummond, thehappymd.com. Uh, this has been the Physicians on Purpose podcast with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, MD, and all of the things that she does, both as a physician, entrepreneur, NLP teacher, transition expert, uh, nigiri sushi eating step aerobics instructor. Thank you, Maisha. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. Until then, keep breathing. See you next time. Thanks, Maisha.